The Missouri, she's a mighty river. Away, rolling river. The red man's camp lies on her borders. Away, we're bound away across the wide. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be continuing my look at Herman Melville's masterpiece, Moby Dick. Um, this is our fifth episode on that, and we'll be covering chapters, I think, 82 to 107 or so. This will be the, the we're nearing the climax of the novel. We have met our characters. We have met the international proletariat. We have met our protagonist. Ahab and his you know he's convinced the crew to go along with him on his quest to to hunt the white whale and then we spent much of the middle part of the novel really talking about whaling and there's these long passages about the process of whaling the stories of whales about whales themselves and that sort of continues into this part of the novel as well Um, but I think the tone of it begins to shift and I, I think there's a theme that really is strong in this and this is about the like the danger of whaling and the threat of it and that's always overhanging the novel of course our our main character ahab of course as you know he lost his leg from moby dick earlier we're going to meet other characters who have also encountered moby dick and have come off a little bit less than whole as a result of that and and it's not just that though this there's a lot of um Kind of background about just the size and the power of of the whales the large number of whales and all of that is in the backdrop that of of this part of the t- tale and as we get to the climax where of course we we know the outcome i mean there's no real need to talk about spoilers for a novel like this you know we we know the pequot's fate so setting up the danger of whaling i think is something that that melville is doing in this part of of the story it Another thing that happens in this part of the story is an introduction into technology. And I think there's really fascinating tensions about technology in the end of the novel. Um, there's a scene, it won't come, we won't talk about it until the final episode, but it's where Ahab destroys the quadrant, right? Rejecting technology. But he also uses technology to make himself a new harpoon, a weapon. And, it, you know, if you're interested in like the Joseph Campbell stuff, the monomyth, and this, this doesn't really qualify because... The Pequot Ahab never get back to Nantucket. There's never a return trip. Uh, they never defeat the enemy. But the the idea of getting the boon, right, is, a, is part of the monomyth, part of the, the hero's journey. And Ahab has one made for him. He has a new leg made for himself, and he has a new harpoon made. You know, he's arming himself for his final conflict. And so there's an embrace of technology to a degree, but there's also a rejection of, of technology. And that, we, so we start to hear more about the technology of whaling. And we... So there, there's an aspect of this, too, where we see just how much the whaling ship works like a factory, that there's boilers and people are working under the deck. There's, you know, this whole process of converting the whale into a commodity, right? It's not something we've talked too much about, but of course, that's part of the story is the transformation of the natural world into a commodity, into something that's just a, something that's priced on the market. Uh, when did we last talk about this um, in this podcast? I'm not sure, but certainly we did it with Frank Norris when we looked at the octopus, right? The, the conversion of the Great Plains 
And I guess that was set in California. But the conversion of the West into a commodity production factory, essentially, right? In that case, it was wheat. And we saw the production and distribution of wheat in that, in that novel. Here we have a much more intimate look of, at the transformation of a living thing, a whale in this case, into a, into a commodity, into um, sperm, sperm oil. All right, well, we'll start with chapter 82. 82 is called The Glory and Honor, or The Honor and Glory of Whaling. And in this chapter, Ishmael talks about the, the mythological history of whaling, how whaling is connected to a lot of mythological figures. But some of these are not ones you normally associate with whaling, such, such as Hercules. He mentions Crockett and Kit Carson, American myth. Joan is here, of course. Quote, he even goes to the East for this, quote, that wonder this Oriental story is now to be rehearsed from the Shasta, which gives us the dread Vishnu, one of the three persons of the Godhead of the Hindus, gives us the divine Vishnu himself of our Lord. Vishnu, who, by the first of his ten earthly incarnations, has forever set apart and sanctified the whale, end quote, even connecting it to Hinduism. So the whale is deep in America or world mythology, right? And that's, that's his point here. And we're going to learn later on, he's going to talk about the deep history in natural science, natural history of, of the whale. He kind of continues this in chapter 83 with his discussion of, of Jonah. Now, Jonah has been there from early chapters. And of course, any book, American book about whaling would be, have a hard time avoiding the story of Jonah. And this chapter is called Jonah Historically Regarded. And in this chapter... Ishmael thinks about, you know, is there, is this story plausible? Can it be drawn from history or is it best seen as myth? And he talks about how there's even a debate among whalers about just how serious we should take this tale. Even justifications such as Jonah wasn't in the belly of the whale, which may have not been possible, but maybe it was just stuck in the throat, right? You know, you have that big head of the, of the sperm whale. Chapter 84 is a little bit about the process of hunting the whale. We've already seen hunting of the whale, and it, this continues to happen in this part of the story, but it's all sort of in the backdrop. It's, it's not the center of, of the story. It's all building up to the confrontation with Moby Dick, but the Pequod is still making money. It's still doing its job as a whaling ship, hunting, hunting whales and bringing them on and processing them, and that, that's happening. But we do get a few scenes of hunting whales in this part. One is talked about here. And the chapter is called pitch pulling, which is actually a process by which a harpoonist kind of uh, from a whale boat will, will throw his, his harpoon. And this is a way of getting an advantage over, over the whale, which, as we learn in future chapters, is very, very necessary because of just how dangerous whales can be to, to human beings. Chapter 85 is the fountain. Now, this is about the spout, the actual, you know, the... the breathing apparatus of the whale. Um, Ishmael continues to insist throughout the whole story that whales were fish. So I guess he must know they have lungs. So it's, he seems to be, I don't know if this was Melville was confused about this or he's playing with um, taxonomy here and or start kind of con contrasting the experience of scientists who will categorize these things based on, you know, certain physical features and science and observations and then the working class, the whalers, who will have a much more practical definition of, of these species. But he doesn't really know what to make of the spout. What's its function? What does it do? And uh, here's a bit of what he writes on this. It's a bit of, it gets into a bit of philosophical speculation about what this is. 
Quote, still we can hypothesize, even if we cannot prove and establish. My hypothesis is this, that the sprout is nothing but mist. And besides other reasons to the conclusion, I am impelled by consideration touching the great inherent dignity and sublimity of the sperm whale. I count him no common shallow being, insomuch as uh, an indisputed fact that he is never found on southings or near shores, as, as other whales sometimes are. He is both ponderous and profound. And I am convinced that from the heads of all ponderous profound beings, such as Plato, Pyrrho, the Devil, Jupiter, Dante, and so on, that there always go up a semi-visible stream, while at the same act of thinking deep thoughts. While composing a little treatise on eternity, I had the curiosity to place a mirror before me, and ere long saw reflected there a curious involve a curious involving worming and undulation of the atmosphere over my head. End quote. So this is the idea that out of any intelligent being when they're thinking you're gonna get steam from from the head. And he even says it happened to him. He witnessed it himself. And this is what's going on with the the sperm whale. Um Kind of a, a fun little observation there. It gets more ominous in chapter 86 where he talks about the, the tail of the whale. He goes all the way to the other side of the whale and looks at its tail. And here the emphasis seems to be on just the danger of the tail. That this is actually what kills people. This is what drowns sailors. This is what destroys whaling boats. This is the main defensive weapon of, of the sperm whale. And this is what is, is killing a lot of, of whalemen. If one whale is dangerous, a whole fleet of them is even more so. And this is, chapter 87 shows the Pequod going into, it's like around Southeast Asia, the East Indies. And we enter, we see these great fleets, essentially great armadas of, of sperm whales, the, the great schools of sperm whales. And that's mostly what it's about, um, just how many of them there are. And, and it's a feast for whaling ships, of course, but... It's also a threat to them. And we also see that there's other people besides whalers in these areas, like pirates. And there's actually pirates from Southeast Asia who chase for a while the Pequod as they're trying to get their piece of, of the whaling action, not by killing whales, but, but by preying on whaling ships. So there's a bit of piracy here. It's, it's kind of a little side reference and they get away, but it's interesting that they throw it in here, or that Melville throws it in. But overall, I just get the feeling here that throughout this section, we're being told again and again of the threat of, of the whales and others as well. And the reason that this is not easy work, it's not safe work. And that, that when you turn on that oil lamp and you light it, you're, you know, people paid for that commodity with, with their lives. They do continue hunting, though, despite the, these threats. And they actually, in this Grand Armada, they're actually able to capture a whale. But if they get away from, or if the, Pe the Pequot only captures one whale here, but it's, we're told by, by Ishmael that it doesn't really matter because others will harvest them. The whaling industry is so big at this point that there'll be other whaling ships that will be deharvesting these whales. Um, tens of thousands of whales were, were killed and turned into whale oil in, in the middle of the 19th century, the time that Melville's writing this. It was big business, a big industry, and... You know, it had an ecological effect on the population of, of whales. I, I don't have the exact numbers with me, and neither does Melville really have them. Now, Melville is very optimistic that the whales can endure anything because there's so many of them. They're in this huge sea. They're kind of always been here. I'll talk about that a little bit later on. But, you know, from an ecological historical perspective, we do know that the hunting of whales had effects. I, I read one book a while ago that talked about whaling. I think it was in the North, North Seas. 
and how the hunting of whales actually led to an increase in the walrus population and the seal population because um, those those were creatures that that ate the codfish. I, I think it was codfish or something. But when the whales were hunted, that created a greater space for other species to take advantage of 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 it of of the lack of whales like you know others one species declines you know other predators will fulfill in that that ecological niche right and in that case it was like walruses and seals it's a good book it's called the unending frontier and it looks at various ecological frontiers in in history and how humans enter into wild areas and and as they transform them into agricultural or in the case of the seas into hunting grounds they they transform the ecology you know into things that are in some cases closer to what their home country was like but you really actually see a transformation of the entire eco ecosystem um, all right chapter 88 continues the theme uh, of the large schools of whales and this chapter is called schools and school masters and that shows that within these schools within these large populations of whales there is some sort of leadership and organization you know mostly he's talking about the males who kind of run these and then and then the young and he kind of compares them at one point to kind of a, a yale or harvard right almost a university type atmosphere where there is kind of a education going on it, it's interesting as much effort that ishmael puts into talking about whales as as kind of intelligent, as social, as having communities, you know, he still doesn't seem to have any regrets about like killing them in large numbers. There's no really no kind of animal rights argument being made anywhere in this this book. I, I think there's a little interpretation of this kind of commodification of, of living things, but it's it doesn't seem to be quite the focus. It's not quite where Melville ends up. Um, Ahab, of course, puts malevolence on the whale and sees the white whale as an evil entity, not just as an animal just doing its thing, right? There's going to be a character we're going to meet shortly that makes this point that, yeah, you know, the whale ate my arm, but, you know, big deal. But that'll, that'll come up in a bit. Um, chapters 89 and 90 cover some minor aspect of the law of the sea regarding whaling. Essentially, the law recognizes two types of, of prey, I guess, of, of ships. They're called fast fish and loose fish. Fast fish is, now it depends on like the situation between the ship and the, and the whale. Like if you're actively hunting a whale, that's called a fast fish and that belongs to the party, quote unquote, fast to it. That's actually pursuing it, right? Other fish, other whales, they're always called fish here, but other whales would be called loose fish, and these could be then taken by anyone, right? So they're not being actively pursued. And this is an important legal distinction because conflicts will emerge in these whaling grounds where there's a lot of ships hunting a lot of whales, right? Because maybe a ship will, will injure a, a whale and it gets away. You know, is that a fast fish or a loose fish? Now, Melville uh, connects this right away to empire, which I, I think he couldn't resist doing. He, he talks a little about empire a lot, like in Taipei and Umu. Not so much in, in Redburn and in White Jacket, but it kind of comes back here in this wonderful little passage where he talks about fast fish and loose fish being as metaphors for countries being gobbled up by the European powers. Quote, Is this not a saying in everyone's mouth? Possession is half of the law. That is, regardless of how the thing came into possession, but often possession is the whole of the law. What are the sinews and souls of Russian serfs and Republican slaves but fast fish? 
where a possession of the whole is the law. What if the rapturous landlord is the widow's last mite but a fast fish? What is yonder undetected villain, villain's man, marble mansion with the door plate for its waif? What is that but a fast fish? What is a ruinous discount which Mordecai, the broker, gets from poor Wobegon, the bankrupt, on the loan to keep Wobegon's family from starvation? What is that ruinous discount but a fast fish? What is the Archbishop of Sevasol's income of a hundred thousand pounds seized from the scant bread and cheese of hundreds of thousands of broken back laborers? What is that globber a hundred thousand but a fast fish? What are the Duke of Dunbar's hereditary towns and hamlets but fast fish? What to that redolent harpooner John Bull is poor Ireland but a fast fish? And what to the apostolic lancer brother Jonathan is Texas but a fast fish? And concerning all of these, is not possession the whole of the law? And then a little bit later on, he says, What was America in 1949 but a loose fish, in which Columbus struck the Spanish standard by way of wafing it for his royal masters and mistress? What was Poland to the Tsar and Greece to the Turk and India to England? What last will Mexico be to the United States? All loosed fish. What are the rights of man and the liberties of the world but loosed fish? What are the men's minds and opinions but loosed fish? A really wonderful passage that gets into the the morality of, of ownership and claiming things as one's own based on some kind of article of the law. Chapter 90 talks about law as well. In this case, it's it's the claim of, of kings over the over what whalers capture. And there's a little side story about English, like an, uh, like an English king claiming a percentage of the whale hunted by, by whalers. Um, now, the whole fast fish, loose fish thing is significant in chapters 91 and 92. In a really fun scene, the chapter is called The Pequod Meets the Rosebud, and the following up chapter is called Ambergris, and they're, they're tied together. And essentially what happens is they run into this ship called the Rosebug that has like this dying whale next to it that's really stinky and rotten. And, and they're going to get rid of this, this, this ship or this whale. And the Pequod comes in and they offer to help with this. But then Stubbs... He insists on, you know, like taking over this, this whale for them. And they, they agree to let him do it because it's just a stinky, rotten fish. That's no good to anyone. But immediately then Stubbs is able to go in and dig out of the whale ambergris from the stomach of the whale. And so there was a profit to be made from this, this whale that apparently the other ship wasn't, didn't think of or didn't, the people on that ship didn't think of or, or pursue. And so he gets this huge chunk of what looks like to be cheese or kind of like like a big stone that looks like cheese that's ambergris right and and this of course it can is commodified as well it's another product of the whale trade i guess it could be a base for perfumes or something it's a bit of a gruesome scene though where he kind of jumps into this rotting whale cuts into it and, and but he gets the ambergris and, and then in chapter 92 the discussion of what ambergris is and where it comes from is is discussed and just how profitable it is for for whalers to to pursue chapter 39 is called the castaway and this is a fairly important chapter um, like a cabin boy named pip is put into i think it's Stubbs's boat um, whaling boat on one of the hunts right and while he's on this he's it's a learning experience for him for for pip it's kind of his first experience on the whale boat but it's also a near-death experience where he's almost killed. He gets he falls overboard, and instead of saving him right away, the 
the boats like go and pursue the whale, right, and kind of leave him there, and he has this this near death experience. And partially, I think it Stubbs leaves him there because it's kind of to teach him a lesson because he was kind of jumping on the boat and not not doing things properly. Um, and here here's Ishmael's thoughts about this. By the merest chance, the ship itself at last rescued him. But from the hour the little Negro went about the deck an idiot, such at least they said he was. The sea had jeeringly kept his finite body up, but drowned the infinite of his soul. Not drowned entirely, though. Rather carried down alive to wondrous depths, where strange shapes of the unwarped primal world glided to and fro before his passive eyes. And the miser man wisdom revealed its horrid heaps. And among the joyous, heartless, ever-juvenile eternities, Pip saw the multitudinous god, omnipresent coral insects that out of their firmament of waters heaved their of orbs. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it. And therefore his shipmates called him mad. So man's insanity is heaven's sense. End quote. And basically he's saying here it was a, you know, kind of a learning experience for, for Pip. Um, something that, that all whalemen presumably have to go through. Chapter 94, The Squeeze of the Hand. Now we're, now we're back to, or we're, we're going to a section really about the processing of the whale oil. And he goes on for several chapters about this. Uh, it's going to be significant a little bit later on with, with Starbuck and Ahab, where they talk about what to, you know, there's a pro, later on there's going to be a problem with the casks, right? And then wait, uh, Starbuck and Ahab are going to have a disagreement about what to do with it. But we see how difficult it is to actually deal with this stuff and make this sperm oil and, and keep it safe. And the chapter is called The Squeeze of the Hand, and it has something to do with when the blubber gets cooled, it has to be kind of squeezed and rubbed to, you know, so it doesn't go bad or something. And so the crew has to sit here and like grab this blubber and squeeze it. And there's a whole conversation that Ishmael has about this process of squeezing the, the whale blubber. It's kind of a shared experience, and there's a bit of solidarity alluded to by, by our narrator as all the crew members are, are squeezing the, the squeezing by hand the, the whale blubber. Chapter 95. Well, chapter 95, the cassock, that's just about the whale's penis. It's like a one-page chapter about that. If you're interested, you can just jump right to it. Um, 96 is back to the processing of the blubber, and that's the triworks, which are essentially the blubber boilers. There's a chapter on the lighting below deck. That's 97. 98, storing down and cleaning up is also about the more on the process. So there's, there's like five chapters, with the exception of the whale penis chapter, that really are all about just the processing breaking down of the the whale we've already seen it cut up and chopped up into into pieces but then this is really about transforming it into the oil um, which was done on the ship through these through these boilers and it's all like we see how important technology is we see it almost as a process of factory production right it's not just hunters who hunt the whale and then drag it drag it home they actually have to engage in this manufacturing process all done by these 30 men Right, this whole process is done by 30 men. And it's rather impressive, I think. And it shows part of the, it's part of the community, it's part of life on the whaling ships. And it's really kind of an unending cycle, right? It's, you know, they, the next day they hunt no more whales. And then at night they have to, you know, other people on the ship have to boil it. It's just a, it's a cyclical process until the ship is filled up with whales and they, they can return home. Of course, this particular ship won't return home until, until Moby Dick is dead because that's, that is Ahab's vow.
And when we get to chapter 99, the Dubloon, we haven't seen much of, of Ahab for a while because the ship was just sort of doing its thing, right? It's, um, I, th I think Melville always has this idea about leadership on these ships that it's really kind of a bottom-up thing, that or the social organization on the ship is bottom-up and that these things really don't need authority. That was a big point in, in White Jacket and to a lesser degree in Redburn that, you know, even in Omu, you have a bit of this. It's just really that the, the ship runs on its own. It has its own logic. Um, but we re reintroduced to Ahab. Of course, he's pacing on the deck again. The focus of this chapter, though, is the doubloon. This was the doubloon that Ahab earlier had promised to whoever would sight Moby Dick before they killed it. Right? So whoever finds, who, who sees him and identifies Moby Dick, and then if they proceed to kill him, they'll get that gold doubloon. That's like the prize that Ahab offered to the crew. And we see different characters look at the doubloon, which is from Ecuador. It's, it's an Ecuadorian coin. But we have different characters who give an interpretation of, of, of the doubloon and, and think about what it, what it means. So here's Stubbs. You know, he's always the more comical uh, character here. Now here's the old mogul. He's been twigging it. And there goes Starbuck from the same, and both with faces which I should say might be somewhere within nine fathoms long. And all from looking at that piece of gold, which, did I have it now on Negro Hill or on Corlock's Hook? I'd not look at it very long ere spending it. <laughs> in my poor and significant opinion, I regard this as queer. I have seen doubloons before now in my voyagings. Your doubloons of old Spain, your doubloons of Peru, your doubloons of Chile, your doubloons of Bolivia, your doubloons of Popayan, with plenty of gold and Madores and Pistoles and Jorge, ho, and Jojes and half Jojes and quarters Jojes. What then should be there for this doubloon of the Ecuador that's so killingly wonderful? By Goncalo, let me read it once. Hello, there's signs and truly, wonders truly. And now, or sorry, that now is what old Bowich in his epitomine calls the Zodiac, and what my almanac calls below ditto. I'll get the almanac and I'll have her devils be raised with doll bones arithmetic. And then he goes on and talks about the whole Zodiac, which he sees on the doubloon itself, all the marks of the Zodiac. So all the different characters find something in it um, based, I guess, on their own perspective on it. So for Ahab, it's a symbol of the entire world. For Starbuck, it's a Christian symbol. Stubb sees it first just as money, but he, then he sees the Zodiac in it, so he's able to, to kind of look at it that way, a little bit more than just money that can be spent. But they all, they all interpret it differently. And, you know, a major theme of this book, of course, is the meaninglessness of symbolism and how we shouldn't let symbolism drive us too much um, because symbols are pretty much blank slates on which we impose our own feelings on. And, and we see that actually in process with the doubloon. But speaking of symbols, we're, we're back to one on, page, on chapter 11 called Leg and Arm, where Ahab has... Well, we're reminded of Ahab's leg again. That, that's it. So they run into another ship called the Samuel Enderbury. It's a, it's a British whaling ship. And Ahab, of course, immediately, like he does when he runs into any other ship, asks about the white whale. And this ship has. So this ship has seen the white whale. In fact, they encountered the white whale. They encountered Moby Dick. And the captain of this ship has lost, like, his arm to the white whale. And what... This tells us, of course, I, I think it's pretty obvious, is that there's another path, right? People can lose limbs to whales. People can be harmed by the animals that are hunting. You know, and every, it goes all the way across the way. Like people who 
you know, regular hunters of deer or whatever, they could be injured while on the hunt. They don't take it out on the animal. They don't personalize it, right? And this guy doesn't. In fact, he seems to be in pretty good spirits about his loss. And the and here's what he says to Ahab about this. Well then, interrupted Bunger, give him your left leg to bait for the to get the right. Do you know, gentlemen? very gravely and mathematically bowing to each captain's succession. Do you know, gentlemen, that the digestive organs of the whale are so inscrutably constructed by divine providence that it is quite impossible for him to completely digest even a man's arm? And he knows it, too. So that's what you take for the white whale's malice is only his awkwardness. For he never means to swallow a single limb. He only thinks of terrifying by feints. But sometimes he is like an old juggling fellow, formerly a patient of mine and still known. The making believes swallow jackknives. Once upon a time, let one drop into him for good earnest, and there stay there for twelve months or more. When I say give him an emetic, and he heaved it up in small tacks, do you see? Not possible for him to digest that jackknife and fully incorporate it into his general bodily system. Yes, Captain Boomer, if you're quick enough about it and have your mind to pawn one arm for the sake of the privilege of getting a decent barrel to the other, why, in that case, the arm is yours. Only let the whale have another chance at you shortly, that's all. End quote. So that's one of the captain's like underlings, but giving some perspective on this. But the point is, there's no malice there, right? That that Ahab thinks the way well has all this malice and, and negative opinions and, and goals against him. So then after this side conversation, we go back to Melville's side discussions of different aspects of whaling. But the rest of this section of, of the book, and I'm going to end on chapter 106 uh, before going in the next, ep in the next episode, I'll, I'll finish up Moby Dick. But all these sections are about the eternity of the whale. And it looks at it in a couple ways. One way is through the bone structure of the whale, the, the, what's left behind of whales. So we have a couple chapters on that. In one, I think it's chapter 102, Ishmael talks about a Pacific Island people that actually have a whale carcass, not a whale carcass, a whale skeleton as a temple. And they kind of worship it as almost a god. We have others where they talk about trying to measure the whale and how difficult it is to get to the size of the whale through just its bones. Because they actually look at the, like a sperm whale skeleton. See, that whole head part is, there's no bone there, right? It's all just blubber and brain and stuff. So the, the bone is kind of a lower part of, the, of that, that oddly shaped skull. But the, the skeleton is still huge, right? And that's kind of something that endures and, and is preserved from the whale. Chapter 104, it's called Fossil Whales, and that's about, you know, how different archaeologists or, anthropo or paleontologists have dug up different whales over the years and found these whale, whale fossils. And the story there is really that these whales have always been around us. They, they're wrong lasting. They've been here for millions and millions of years. And... And they're not something that's going to go away. Quote, when I stand among these mighty Leviathan skeletons, skulls, tusks, jaws, ribs, and vertebrae, all characterized by a partial resemblance to the existing breeds of sea monsters, but at the same time bearing, on the other hand, significant affinities to the annihilated antichronial Leviathans, their incalculable seniors, I am by a flood born back to the wondrous period, ere time itself could be said to have begun, for time began with man. Here Saturn's gray chaos rolls over me, and I observe or I obtain deep, shuddering glimpses into those polar eternities when wedged bastions of ice pressed hard upon what are now the tropics. And he goes on in this way. 
even talking about prehistoric whales who were even bigger than the current whales. And then this leads us to chapter 105, where the, where the question is, are whales going to endure? And Ishmael comes to the conclusion that whales will be a permanent presence on the earth. They, they won't die out. And he actually compares how much the whalers have harvested of whales compared to how much the buffalo hunters in the Great Plains have harvested. And there we see a decline in population, but whalers haven't nearly done that much damage to the population of whales compared to, to bison. So we get a nice little ecological comparison between the, the kind of impact humans can have on land versus the impact they can have at sea. He then concludes that however perishable whales are on the individual, they are eternal, essentially, in, in the terms of, of historical time or natural historical time. And, you know, chapter 106 probably is best left to talk about next time, but, but that's where I put my, my dog here, so I'll just mention it. I'll, I'll come back to this when we open the next chapter, and this chapter is called Ahab's Leg. And Ahab's going to go into his final confrontation with the white whale with two new boons. One is going to be a new leg, and the other is going to be a new harpoon, right? And we got a few chapters in which how he gains these is talked about. Um, chapter 106, called Ahab's Leg, is about the failure of his old whale leg, whale bone leg. So that was, his bone was made out of whale bone, or his leg was made out of whale bone. But it's failing, it's not as effective for him anymore. And this was well known even before the Pequod set out from Nantucket. Quote, for it had not been long prior to the Pequod sailing from Nantucket that he had found, he'd been found one night, Ahab had been found one night lying prone upon the ground and insensible by some unknown and seemingly inexorable unimaginable casualty. His ivory limb had been so violently displaced that it had stake-wise smitten and all but pierced his groin, nor is it without extreme difficulty that the agonizing wound was entirely cured. End quote. That's kind of gruesome and horrifying to, to listen about. His prostatic leg actually broke loose and jabbed him in the groin and and did some uh, unspeakable damage. That's, that's only hinted at here. That, so this leads Ahab, before going into his final confrontation with Ahab, to, to want to seek out a new leg. So he seeks out the ship's carpenter to, to make a new leg for him. And that's where we'll let off. we got about 100 pages left in the book, maybe about 110. That will take us to, to the end of the novel. So that'll be next episode. So if you're reading along, read from chapters 107 to the end for, for the next episode. Um, thank you always for listening. If you have any of you these thoughts about these aspects of technology and manufacturing on the ship or the way whales are described in the end of the novel, my feeling being they're being described in more ominous ways as more of a threat, um, more even more intelligence than perhaps they were discussed earlier in the story. And I'm also interested in the introduction of technology into the story, something that's going to be a major theme in the final pages, both the technologies that get rejected on this quest and those that get brought in um, in the so anyways leave your comments below or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll be back with part 6 in my finale of my thoughts on uh, Herman Melville's Moby Dick at last there came a Yankee skipper